If you're an optimist and believe in the ingenuity of the human race to get things done, I do think we'll get it sorted. Welcome to the Bailiwick Express podcast. My name is Matthew Leach. I'll be joined each week by a guest for a series of podcasts. Each will shine a light on topics from across the Bailiwick. The format will change week to week. We'll have debates, reviews, hot seat interviews and special guests. So stick with us as we offer some insight on some of the most important issues we in the Bailiwick face. The 26th UN Summit on Climate Change, COP26, is well underway, with hundreds of nations coming together in Glasgow this year to tackle climate change. Some of the big headlines from this year include the pledge from more than 100 countries to reverse deforestation by 2030, and £6 billion being pledged to South Africa to ditch coal. To give his insight on the events so far, expert economist, strategist and local advocate for sustainable finance, Dr Andy Sloan came in to talk to us. He's the founder of the International Sustainability Institute and sits on the board of the ESI Monitor. He tells us what the biggest takeaways have been so far and why Guernsey plays such an important role in a diverse global issue. Tell us, I mean, what do you make of the event so far, of the summit so far? Um, we'll come on to a more local spiel about it later, but as it stands, how's it going? It's going all right. I mean, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of ooh and ahhing because China wasn't coming and China's the biggest emitter of you know, greenhouse gases on the planet sort of thing. But they have made a commitment to 2060. It's 10 years later than we've got. Um, but the week started off all right. Uh, the Indians made a commitment. It was better than nothing. Then you had... Uh, the methane, but that was sort of done, the commitment to reduce methane, which is, you know, cows, backsides, etc., etc., and it's one of the biggest uh, co- contributors to carbon, and it usually doesn't get quite as big a, a headline as everything else. But that was sort that agreement was sort of made back in, I think, September uh, time, when, when Boris went to uh, New York to visit the UN. So not that wasn't particularly new news. And yesterday we had the big finance day, and it was all right. You had Mark Kearney uh, with his uh, private, uh, the G fans, the private commitments. Because what COP is, it's basically, you know, don't, don't tell anybody, it's quite dull as dishwasher, to be right, Frank. What it is, is it's a bunch of governments, the intergovernmental conference for two weeks, effectively trying to rework the agreements on what the, each government is doing to reduce climate change. And so everyone has nationally determined contribution. Oh, I'll reduce by this, and I'll reduce by that. And then, uh, you know, the, and the horse trading going on. And there's 100, God knows, 70 odd, whatever participants there, 175 were at COP21, 88% of greenhouse gas emissions. And they're basically agreeing a text of what, they, what they're going to do. And the rest of it is about, you know, what, what they're announcing while it's going on. And, and it really is about um, generating momentum in terms of uh, global consensus and action and public opinion and trying to get people on board. So yesterday with the finance sector is a big deal because climate change mitigation, the IPCC, International Panel on Climate Change, said, look, climate change is not a good thing, existential threat to the human race, dinosaurs, you know, extinction rebellion, etc, etc, etc. And, you know, broadly speaking, you go back 15, 20 years, the forecast was that climate would go up by about seven, eight degrees. You know, and there's been quite a bit of action in the last 20 years. Kyoto, you know, our, our emissions are like 40, 45% less than they were in 19, you know, whenever. And so there has been progress. But we're still talking about a climate 
change of like about three degrees without any more that we were doing today. And to get it down to 1.5 and 2 degrees, which is what the IPC has said is like the manageable bit for us, um, requires a lot of investment, a lot of money. And we're talking the amount of money that's gone into uh, stopping climate change or mitigating it, I should say, you're not going to be able to stop it, uh, has been yeah, 30, 40% of what's required over the last five years since we, or six years in general, we got together in Paris. And Paris was the big one where they said, look, you know what, finance is key to this. If we get the finance sector on board, that'll be a jolly good thing. And that's broadly where we've been at for the last six years. So we come to Guernsey, we've you know, established Guernsey Green Finance a few years ago, where we joined Guernsey Finance, and it was basically an initiative to get us all sort of excited and on board with you know, trying to finance climate change mitigation. We always look at the Green Fund, the ESG framework for insurers, and, and, and that's all great news and everything like that. And that's, and that's really good, but we're still massively short of where we need to be. And climate risk itself is quite, um, it's quite an existential thing, you know, you yeah. know. We live on an island, you know, we can physically you know, work it out. Well, sea levels will rise and there'll be less of the island for us to live on, but less facetiously. You know, there's lots of things that we can do locally. It's all about everyone doing their bit. You know, if I turn around and say, well, it's up to somebody else to do it, you're in the realms of Nimola. And, you know, when they came for me, there was no one left to speak up for me, you know, the poem I'm referring to. But, you know, if we all leave it to somebody else, nothing will get done. But lots of has been done. It's about doing more. And yesterday was the big, you know, the, the day of a really interest to us in Guernsey. But quite frankly, one of the reasons why I set up the Institute is that we can do great things in finance, and we are doing great things in finance, and there's more that we can do. But on the environmental side too, the opportunity for us is, is massive. We've got amazing resources here that we really, across the two islands, ought to be able to harness and give something back to the world. Because you know, we're not known for that, giving things back to the world. Over here. We're sort of seen as takers by you know, the French and many, many things, take of other people's taxes, that sort of thing. And it would be nice if we could really just generally re-engineer ourselves across both the environmental the, uh, the financial and the fiscal side, which is the, the reason why I you know, launched that. The International Sustainability Institute, the Channel Islands, was to actually bring across those three different areas and try and give something back to the world, you know, across the piece. And so we're talking about, you're talking about the cost it's going to be. It's going to cost a lot of money to make, to enact these changes to do what we're talking about here. And of course, I suppose we could say that governments possibly don't have enough money to do this kind of stuff. Are we trying to mobilise private capital here? Yeah. And is this where we come into play, I suppose, as an island? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's it's about that. One of the big, one of the four strands of COP has been, one of the four strands of the finance bit of COP has been actually mobilisation of private capital. So you've got the nationally determined contributions to reduce climate, uh, carbon emissions of, of countries. Then you've got a commitment to fund the developing world. And then, you know, but then you're talking, well, the shortfall of what's required to invest in actually, you know, achieving the goals. Uh, we're talking trillions. And... You know, if you look at where the wealth is held in the world, that's most of it is held in private hands. And if you're not going to mobilise the wealth that's in the hands of the private uh, people in uh, private hands, then you're not going to mobilise capital. So it is about financing uh, private capital, and that's something that Jersey we're pretty, you know, pretty good at. We're good, pretty good at it in Jersey as well, to be frank. Um, and it's about being able to provide um, the basically the platform, the route to sort of funnel capital to doing good things and it's whether it's uh, you know whether it's a, a private fund or a family office or a trust you know looking to facilitate that sort of investment it is um, 
a route of investment that more and more owners of private wealth wish to see their capital deployed. You know, particularly in the uber rich. You know, the uber rich are generally tend to. You've got to remember that one thing that the uber rich want to do is preserve their capital, not into you know wasting it or losing it. Yeah. Um, but while they're doing it, enhancing the the public good that their capital can achieve, is something you'll find lots of people want to do. I mean, you get the the Bill Gates uh, initiative is about you know giving back half their wealth. Oh yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember that. But you know that sort of philanthropic wanting to do good, wanting to you know it, it's sort of it's uh, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, isn't it? You know, once me and you have managed to sort of put some food on the table and a roof over our head, then we sort of worry about you know maybe a bit of entertainment, a bit of leisure time. But once you're that sort of rich and your hierarchy goes up to, well, I need to do good with it. You talk about all this money, this this trillions you mentioned before. I mean, what is that being spent on? What are we talking about? What's well, it's the... not. That's the problem at the moment. And what should it be spent on? You have got huge amounts of requirements for you know, uh, energy transition. Um, you know, one of the big arguments about um, COP this this time round has been the you know the fact that the Chinese are still planning to you know f- uh, invest in another round of uh, of coal fired power generation. They agreed, didn't they? The EU or France agreed to fund South Africa to stop coal. This was decided this week or yesterday. I, I missed that, but the detail of that particular one. I may say to fund all of South Africa, but I do know the South Africans remember them popping up beforehand going, hey, you remember you said it was going to cost you 100 billion a year? Think of it as more as three quarters of a trillion. You know, I said maybe 50 billion. And I think there's a bit of, new, you know, like I say, negotiation yeah. going on there. The South Africans say, come on, guys, you know, a uh, bit, bit more, please. So, there was that, but the, the, the coal issue is respect of there was some slight agreement to not fund any internet, more foreign sort of coal. So the Chinese said, look, we'll, we'll stop financing more coal generation building elsewhere, but not domestically. Um, but you think about that, and that's still the, the levels required to, to, to get to a net zero pathway by 2050 is around one and a half trillion per annum over that time period and it has been over the last five years and we've been running at like 30-40% of that and that's just in renewables. Then you're talking about transport, you're talking about transitioning us all off the internal combustion engine, you're talking about supply chains, you're talking about adaptation and one of the things that's sort of probably doesn't really grab the headlines for us here, you're talking about Africa and sub-Saharan Africa in the developing world where quite frankly if you're asking people to commit to a net zero future now you're denying them uh, the ability to increase their lot and standard living in life. You know. Could they skip a stage? Is there an argument yeah, to be a, said? A great, a, a, a disproportionate cost to them. I mean, this is one of the one of the big issues in the, in the sort of the, the big dilemma is in you know sub-Saharan Africa. The the risk-adjusted return to climate adaptation or you know, is much lower than what private capital looks to rec- is seeking to achieve. So you know, North American pension funds got oodles of capital, sub-Saharan Africa, lots of things that you could do, except the, the return available in sub-Saharan Africa doesn't match what they need. In, in, in. And that, never the twain shall meet issue, has been, is, is something that nobody's quite yet gotten there, uh, has, has managed to find that silver bullet. Because without that, you are unable, you know, you, it's, it's sort of, is it wrong for um, you know, Africans to have a decent energy and or water requirements if it, they're producing a little bit of carbon at levels 
minor percentage points or basis points of what we've emitted over the last 200 years. So there is that fairness issue there that, yeah. you know, and financing that through private capital is something that nobody's yet managed to resolve. We talk about um, private capital and finance, well, I'll bring it right back round to uh, to Guernsey, of course, we're going to talk about local and we've got local representatives in COP26 this year. Um, so do you, you believe we have a, a an important role to play in this very international stage? Yeah, I mean, it's great that Jonathan and Lindsay are there, you know, I mean, you know, uh, flying the flag for Guernsey uh, and being involved. It's, it's, I think it's important in terms of our general recognition of, of, as, a, as a jurisdiction. You know, you know, it's, it's the maturity of the jurisdiction that we're there. We're not a sovereign state, so we don't get to participate directly. We're under the UK's umbrella. We're part of the British family. Um, but I think hopefully if it, you know, what we can do is, yeah, yes, we can help finance, but we need to do the other things as well. We, you know, it's, also, it's about recognising that maybe, I say to my little lad about, you know, what would Jesus do? Mate? You know, and it's like, well, you know, seriously, you wouldn't leave it to everybody else to do. You do unto others. It's, it's about doing our bit. And if we... You know, we come back and we recognise that, you know, we haven't yet um, met anywhere near the required sort of standards of building. You know, the way that we build it locally in general is you know, decades behind in terms of standards of sustainability to the mainland. Um, that We know that we're going to have to replace our oil fired yeah. oilers on the island at some juncture. That we've got this huge amount of resources there. And if one good thing could come out of this, and again, this is... Something that I've uh, publishing uh, under, in, under the Institute's banner in the, in the coming weeks is that the idea that the concept we could be the Terrawatt Islands, you know, together with Jersey, with our you know with our long-standing friends across the, across the water there, you know, we should be able to harness what is effective, you know, gigawatts and terawatts of energy in a renewable manner and export that to the continent at some juncture. It's not, it's not, it's not fantasy. It is perfectly physically possible, and I'm, you know, it's financially possible within a reasonable time horizon. You've just got to do the numbers and, and work it out. And it is doable, but it will require private capital. And again, well, hopefully one of the Institute's role is to be able to advocate that sort of thing and, and show people how that might happen and maybe attract uh, private capital into helping us achieve some of those types of goals. Is there an appetite for that here? I think never more, never more so than there has been all the time I've been on the island. I have been in conversations with owners uh, of private wealth, family offices, and such, and yeah, I think there's a there seems to be a, almost a critical mass of similar thinking here, and it's possibly maybe you know uh, seize the day and see if we can do something this time around. Yeah, it's been something that's been. I'm from Hull originally. I've been promised tidal energy for the last fifty years. It's, still never happened yeah it's it, the power of the tide out there is something that really ought to be harnessed it'd be great if we could do something I, can, I couldn't agree with you more on that one finish off i suppose with when we talk about climate change the news up until this point has been quite scary for some people doom and gloom kind of thing this is we've got ourselves into a position can we have a sunnier outlook after cop 26 have there been enough headlines of of decisions being made i mean before, i think both, you know, there's, there's often the difference. There's often a very mismatch in all walks of life between the rhetoric and reality of a lot of things. So the rhetoric of you know doom and gloom is, might, you know, some some argue it's slightly overdone. At the end of the day, where human beings are pretty innovative, and that despite everything else, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of people dying of uh, called, you know from um, you know, extreme weather events is its lowest it's ever been. You know, that's fact. It's not. I'm not making that bit up. 
Um, so in some respects, it's you know there's the scare stories about it was the worst for climate you know events last year. Yeah, sort of like bring it back to you know to you know, a bit more grounded, please. Um, and so the human race can be innovative and get things done. And there are some people that talk about the S curve and so you know this. Yeah, it could quite well be a new technology in the next 15, 20 years that takes carbon out of the atmosphere and, you know, hey, presto, job done. You know, I mean, that that is not beyond the scale, beyond the realms of possibility. So quite frankly, the you know, if you're an optimist and believe in the ingenuity of the human race to get things done, I do think, um, you know, we, we'll get it sorted. It might not be quite in that sort of smooth path uh, that, you know, it would be nice, you know, too, but... We saw the trans what's called the transition risks in recent in recent months, where the UK had its problems with um, energy um, yeah. buying, buying gas because the Russians are exporting the stuff at the moment. The prices through the roof come, come over here as well. That's, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and the, the knock-on effect. Yeah, states is having to give or is, is, is looking at giving um, discounts or vouchers. They did to, a to release this week. Yeah. yeah, and that's all about you know the wholesale price markets. Uh, to, to keep COP going last <laughs> last night, I think they had to pull on board two coal-fired and that which. They managed to get 400 times the typical spot price to, to at the margin to bring that electricity on stream. You know, eye popping in the amounts. You know? Yeah. And it's not necessarily you know, the, the, there is. It's got to be a much more sensible route to managing the transition from A to B than that wholesale. You remember, you remember the, the dash for gas back in the days. It was pretty inconsequential, but the dash for renewables has to be managed until the battery technology catches up and you can store the energy. So in the meantime, you're going to have to do some things that maybe you prefer not to do. Yeah. But around the corner, there could be something amazing that you haven't foreseen yet. Thank you for listening to the Bailiwick Express podcast. The title track was Shift My Weight by Luno. If you enjoyed it, I know it's a pain, but please like and share. It all helps, and remember, you can hit bailiwickexpress.com to stay right up to date with whatever is happening in the Bailiwick. You can find us online, on social, on email, and on internet radio. There'll be more from me, Matthew Leach, and all the Bailiwick Express team next Friday.